Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. Jim Harrison, American writer, died at the end of March a couple of weeks ago. One probably very long winter after Linda, his wife of 57 years, passed away last October. He was a poet who made a lot of money writing screenplays and novels and then gave much of it away to his friends. He was a generous man, funny and brilliant. He could write the most gut-wrenching macho tale and then turn around and write a novel in the voice of a woman and then turn again and write a poem about a river or a raven. And they were all good. Everything he wrote got under your skin like a cry of pain and joy and being alive. He believed writing was his calling and he worked at it like a Lutheran, publishing 18 collections of poetry, 23 novellas, 13 novels, four collections of nonfiction, and six screenplays. In 2007, Jim came through Salt Lake City promoting his latest book, Returning to Earth, and a local radio program here asked me to interview him. Then, last week after he died, the local show, Radio West, rebroadcast the interview. I heard it and thought I should play it on Home of the Brave because Jim was like the finest wine, the best food, amazing stories. Yeah, I hitchhiked through here when I was 16. I, or, no, I was 18. I was going to California, and uh, a kind young woman let me sleep on a restaurant table in the back of this restaurant in Heber. And then... Uh, I bucked bales over by, what's it called, Fort Duchesne to get enough uh, money to eat on my way home, you know. You came back through here, going home. Yeah, yeah, I was just curious. I had to look at it, you know. What do you remember about Salt Lake at that time? It was a lot smaller, (laughs) you know. It's like the other day I was in Denver on Larimer Street, and it looks a lot different than it did in... 1954, not surprisingly, you know. Right. I know, there's like a new stoplight in the city every day, driving around. Well, that's not for us to say, you know. I'm not sort of romantic, you know. I was in the Florida Keys fishing a lot in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s. And everybody says, oh, it's changed. Well, of course it's changed. You know, we can't stop anything. You can't control anything you don't own. There's nothing to do about the growth problem? Well, you know, uncontrolled growth, of course, as I think at Abbey. Well, Norman Mailer said it too. Uncontrolled growth is the logic of the cancer cell. But people seem unwilling to do a great deal about it, you know? Well, it's still kind of a nice city when the air's air's clear. Yeah, but the the nice thing about it's a bit like Tucson. You can get out of it so fast. We're not 10 minutes from town, and it's lovely. There's not very many places where the outside becomes that beautiful that fast. So you guys are lucky, you know. I remember taking that old road from Provo over uh, that goes over toward Heber, once when I visited, you know that movie director, Sidney Pollack? Yeah. We were doing a project together about 20 years ago, and he had that house over in Sundance. So we had to come from Sundance back then to Provo to get groceries. 
I mean good groceries because I was making a French meal. I was making a ratatouille, that French vegetable dish, and some veal chops, huh? What's Sidney Pollock? Oh, I liked him a lot. He's uh, intensely literate, which is not that common in show business. I was reading one of the, I've read, been reading some of the interviews you've done with other people, and one of them you said more people read books in Hollywood than in New York. Well, I think as a general rule, I might have been just nagging the New Yorkers, but demographically, uh, L.A. is a bigger book-reading audience than New York City. Uh-huh. New York City, they're drinking spritzers and talking about themselves. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. But New York is really the publishing Well, it's kingdom. the center of publishing. I always thought it should be in Minneapolis, you know, for a fair view of the country. And a much lower overhead, you know. That's why books cost $25. When I started writing, I think Legends of the Fall cost five ninety-five. Now suddenly, 30 years later, books, 28 years later, books are $25, you know. Right. Do you feel like you were kind of ignored by the New York critics of the New York publishing world for a while? Well, a little while. It didn't bother me too much because I was making a living, I think. For a writer, if your books are in print and you're making a living, you have no cause. As a literary novelist, if you could support yourself, you have no cause for a complaint because even, you know, for 20 years I'd been doing so well in France and that more than made up for it, ego-wise, made up for New York's perhaps neglect, you know. I mean, if you're hot in Paris, it's even pleasanter than New York, you know? I bet. The I food's b- better. <laughs> <laughs> what is that like, to be a, uh, like a superstar in France? Oh, I said to my wife, if I was doing as well in America as I was doing, in, as I'm doing in France, we'd have to live in Mexico or British Columbia, because... You know, I've always lived in rather remote areas, and right. I don't, uh, I'm not fond of intrusions, uh, you know. People will come after you, try to find yeah, you. Yeah, that kind of thing, because Margaret Atwood said a wonderful thing. To want to meet an author because you like his work is the same thing as wanting to talk to a duck because you like pate. You know, you get what I mean? <laughs> I mean, the books are there. The books the books are hopefully more interesting than the person, you know? Yeah. But Holden Caulfield, he really wanted to meet Isaac Dennison. Yeah, I don't blame him. You know, my friend Guy de la Valdan, his mother was a close friend of Isaac Dennison. And uh, I must say that was maybe the one author other than Faulkner, who didn't want to meet anyone, you know. You know, Faulkner got tired of visitors, so he took his old Ford tractor and plowed up his driveway, you know. And Solinger is still alive, but nobody's seen him in years? Yeah, I think that's a more severe form of uh, that neurosis. I think he felt that he had been mistreated and just decided to disappear. And then evidently, 
help his writing because he's published almost nothing since he disappeared. You see what I mean? Maybe he's holding on to stuff, or do you think he just stopped I writing? I doubt it. I doubt it. You know, I knew Truman Capote, and Capote kept talking about, even to me, you know, to lie to a fellow writer is a little odd, but uh, about this immensely long novel he was just changing from the first person to the third person. Well, and then Capote said it was a thousand pages long, but when he died, they found out it didn't exist. You know, that he had sort of just been seized up for the last decade of his life, which is sad. I think it's easier to stay functional as an artist if you live rather remotely, you know, like I do in Montana or down on the Mexican border. I wanted to ask you about Salinger because sometimes when I'm reading your stories, uh, the character reminds me a little bit of Holden Caulfield. Hmm. The, you know, the he writes in the first person, and Holden, you're a lot inside Holden's mind as as much as you are following the action huh. in the story. And you often, not always in your stories, but you write in about your characters, you have them tell the story first person. Well, I do, because uh, as Rilke, Rainier Maria Rilke, the Austrian poet, said, Sometimes you have to think, who is this third person? Hmm. Who is this third person that we write in? The omniscient narrator who's invisible. Why not try to totally inhabit your characters? And then, of course, the dangerous thing is you sort of become the characters, and it's sometimes hard like a method actor to get out of the park, you know? Right, like you, you wake up very early in the morning and yeah. you enter the mind or soul of other people, basically. Well, hopefully, yeah, you have to inhabit all your characters. Walker Percy wrote a wonderful essay called The Reentry Problem. Now, how do you get out of your characters back into your own? Well, Actually, first, how do you get in? How do you get into the character? Well, that's just because uh, to be be a good writer, I think you have to be immensely naked and vulnerable to the nature of the human race. I mean, some are harder. I had a great deal of trouble when I wrote Dalva to fully inhabit a woman in order to speak in her voice, partly because I'm a man, but to catch uh, the entirety of entirety of her character was difficult indeed you know you write as a woman very well I mean I I remember reading a woman lit by fireflies and I didn't know a, a man wrote it. I missed your name at the start I started to read it and I was stunned when I read that you, you were the author of that yeah a lot of people actually were you know that appeared in the New Yorker magazine it was quite comic cause that's why I, I read it yeah I got about a a couple hundred letters from women that the same thing had happened when they determined they can't live with their husbands a minute longer and they just disappeared she know? walked away from him on a freeway rest yeah, stop yeah, at a rest stop in Iowa she walked off through the <laughs> cornfield you know and I like the idea you know that old biblical thing Ruth amongst the alien corn you know the no, old testament what it, thing uh, huh. 
but it's just the idea of walking through a cornfield where you're you're truly lost, but then you get to the other side, ha, a new life, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So how do you get into a woman's mind? I'm not so sure. Like in the case of Dalva, I dreamed her. Yeah, you were you dreamed that she was sitting on a porch in Santa Monica, uh, longing on a for home. Longing for home because that's what really invades that book is that character of longing. You know that uh, I remember when we had to, for economic reasons, I had to leave Northern Michigan and teach out on Long Island for two years. My first and last teaching job, I would just get a a lump beneath my breastbone, you know, of a, a, such intense longing for the trackless forests of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and the rivers and so on. That character of longing just over for our homeland can overwhelm us, you know. You know, it's Canaan land, as they probably say locally. You know, to get back to where you feel at home. It's a biological thing, maybe. I well, think. I think it might. I think you might be right. You know, because it's even what controls your dream life, your first perceptions. You know, you're you're one and a half years old. Your parents have old cabin that your father and his brothers who came back from World War II and not in very good shape, they built this wonderful cabin for $900 of materials, you know, and they all knew how to build a cabin. And we lived there in the summer for years, but I can remember this a mere child wandering off into the forest, and just the wonderment of it all. Who was it Jung said, Carl Jung said, in dreams, animals are your soul chasers. They're tracking your soul to try to help you recover it. You have dreams of bears and birds Yeah, a lot, frequently. A lot of, uh, well, I mean, I was 25 years, I had this remote cabin in the UP, and I would see bears all the time, you know, they were visitors. So... You got you had this dream of Dalva sitting on a porch in Santa Monica longing for home. What happened then? How did you end up Well, I just uh I don't know. You know, sometimes here's a way of putting it in a non hopefully non vulgar sense. The ghost that lays the golden egg shouldn't be craning around looking at his butt. You see what I mean? You should just let it happen, and for some reason, you know, like Jung said, in, 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 for men, he said, what have we done with our twin sister whom the culture forces us to abandon at birth? You know, this isn't saying in cheap psychology, psychological way, that we have a feminine part because in actuality we're all female for the first 
few days of our conception, you know. And then some some of us become male and some don't, you know. That's our origin. Well, my mother had five sisters. Uh, I had a wife and two daughters and female dogs, cats, females, chickens, female horses. So it's not surprising that I would understand females. Your most recent book, Returning to Earth, is about uh, death in the family. It's a lot about death or how the family responds to the man who's like the linchpin in the family dying. Yeah, I mean, the strongest man, you know. I mean, Cynthia, you know, like Dalva, his wife, uh, Donald's wife, is an improbably strong woman. Unlike the weakness of her brother as a son, she had a lovely life raising children with Donald, who was a construction worker, cement finisher, and then he had his own little construction company. Now you're talking about them in the third person, which doesn't happen in the book. These things, some of these things came out in the book and some of them didn't because they speak about themselves in the first person and they leave a lot out. Well, sure, you always leave a lot out because you're painting the picture that you're thinking about, you know. And a lot, you know, when Donald gets to the point where he's telling his story, the story of his ancestors, four generations, he finally says to himself, I got to tell some bad parts, you know, of some wrong things I've done, mm-hmm. you know, which is altogether proper. I mean, my daughters know that their father wasn't always a hero. <laughs> you get what I mean? Right, right. He could be a bad person, too, right. you know? Mm-hmm. But everything is family, mostly in my work, it occurred to me. When a French critic pointed that out, that's still the family unit is where I emerge from, you know? In this book, Donald dies. He writes the first section of the book, and it goes up to the point where he describes this spiritual experience he had uh, spending three days in the woods in well, Canada. Tra- yeah, well, it's traditional amongst the spiritual-minded Anishinaabe, or Chippewas, they call them, or Ojibwes. But if you want to sort out your life, this isn't a short vision quest you know, the con job that they're selling for a couple hundred bucks. This is three days, three nights without food, water, or shelter. So when he dies, he wants to go back there. Well, yeah, because that was the source of his acceptance in life. You know, when he was seeing everything from all sides at once, you know. On the first day, there's a storm, and he almost gets hit by lightning. And on the second day, he's visited by a bear who, yeah, the, right. it's a female bear that at first wants to fight him, and then she comes back and she's like hitting on him. Yeah, she thinks, she thinks he, <laughs> he, he occurs to maybe she's, because uh, Donald's a big guy and he's sort of, well, frankly, he has what they call bear medicine. Hmm. You know, and that's what his daughter perceives because she can't accept her father's death, you know. I mean, when my father died at 53, it was just simply unbearable to my younger brother and sister who had, who were 10 and 11, had no conception, couldn't 
you know, it's just the blunt fact that their father and sister died in a car accident. Well, that was the point at which if this can happen to people you love, I may as well do what I want and become a writer because what else am I supposed to... Everything else is inconceivable at this point if life is that utterly fragile, you know? Huh. Yeah. So, all right, but on the third day, yeah. Donald is visited by three big ravens who stand yeah. on the ground in front of him yeah. And he thinks they want to know why he's there. Well, so he tells them. Do. He tells them why he's there. What does yeah. he say? Well, he's there. He's there to find out about his life, and then he includes the fact that he had seen a raven funeral before, and he has this intuition that though he's in his mid forties, he's not long for the earth. You know, he doesn't know in what form it's going to come, you know. But, but he has a vision that he's going to get sick and die. Die, yeah, yeah. But then, as he says, he already accepts that because everything that's born dies. But then you tend to think of it as they do in old traditional ways, that it's a continuum because... I remember I, when I had sort of a satori awakening, and I realized that no one is born and no one dies, hmm. you know, hmm. in that technical sense, you know, like in a poem I said, we'll all see God, but not with our eyes, you know, that kind of sense, the mystery, the great mysterium that is life, you know. Right, he says after this three days, he says it was comforting or a relief to realize that the spirit is everywhere and not just a thing that's separate yeah well of course it is but that realization is uh, profound you know I remember once when I had a moment like that I sat down on a stump during a troubled time I sat there on this old pine stump for hours without moving and uh Warblers landed on me. You know, it was during the migration in May. And that was a marvelous experience to have birds landing on you like you were an object that you had become a stump, you know? Donald says he learned to see himself as animals see him. And then he became a snake. Well, yeah, but see, here's the thing. This Hasid... You know, the the Jewish religion said, don't you think the reality is an aggregate of the perceptions of all creatures? That delightful Indian name was true from Legends of the Fall. That man, one who sees as a bird which is an interesting point of view. That was his name, the Cheyenne, one who sees as a bird. He he has this experience two years before he becomes sick, and then he gets sick with Lou Gehrig's disease, and instead of just wasting away, he decides that he wants to choose the day of his death. Well, which is understandable. This is an utterly horrid disease, and... By that time already, it can be very aggressive. 
You know, like, I've talked to a couple of them. You know, like when you have a severe cramp in your leg from running? Well, his entire body becomes a cramp like that. Even his brain, his face, his tongue, his heart, everything. That's the degenerative cycle of the disease. But he doesn't talk about that. When he when he's speaking, he doesn't really talk about the pain. No, because it's not in his culture to talk about your private pain. It's the common good. There's a reason why they're tribal. They're not romantic heroes. I wrote a goofy little poem about the romantic hero on a plane, all, all alone, you know, in the universe. Huh. And he thinks, luckily, there's a pilot on this buggy. <laughs> you know, we are not alone. <laughs> that was a fiction in 19th century England, the romantic huh. hero, you know. <laughs> huh. So he he's wasting away. Yeah. And Well, he decides to choose the moment and the place of his death, you know. The summer solstice. And he wants to go back to the place where he had this spiritual experience. Well, this power vision, yeah. Well, that's that would be altogether beautiful and natural place to die. But see, I'm not talking about politics and laws or euthanasia. I just don't. And I'm a Democrat, but I don't understand a government that wants to invade every moment of our life. You know, the government's supposed to be here for us, not us for them, don't you think? Yeah. So why are they snooping and all this stuff the way people live? I've noticed more and more in America there's a kind of a corrosive parsimony of spirit, you know, an invasive feeling of uh, the government. I don't know. It's to say I'm a Democrat and I'm all for the social good, but lighten up. There's a kind of social Maoism going on now. You know, it's like they were laughing in Seattle. You know, I smoke, but uh, they passed the law in Seattle. No smoking in restaurants, which is okay by me. Bars, I mean, give me a break. People ought to smoke in bars. But in Seattle, they don't want you smoking within 20 feet of the entrance of the bar. So there are some streets where there are a lot of bars, which, of course, now this is outside, mind you. Now, what is this social Maoism? That allows people to make these kind of laws, you know? Yeah, they're doing it here now as well. Well, I mean, it's crazy. You're outside. America's outside. Give me a break. (laughs) Meanwhile, there are 12 million children with no health insurance. I mean, get real. You know, go do something real. Instead of saying no, say yes. Get those 12 million kids health insurance, for God's sake. Donald's family, irregardless of the laws, they load him in a car and drive him across the border into Canada. Canada, they, yeah. They dig a grave. They sit him down beside the grave and inject him with phenobarbital and yeah, dilantin. Pro- and then he dies. Yeah, they left him down there and put him on the cedar boughs. This is his request. And his but, wife sings some songs in his ear. And then they bury him. Yeah. And, and drive home. Yeah. 
Is that how the book started with that image for you? Is it no, no. The book, the book started like True North, the first part about though the novels exist independently. Is that we all have to face this in our culture, which is a very non-traditional culture. Death keeps coming to people. To families is the prize. When what, what did they think what was going to happen? You know, we forget in our non-traditional culture that this is part of life. You know, which is much less true in Europe, for instance. You know, where you have a an official year-long mourning period. You know, that's why the chips uh, chipwas have the ghosts suffers in November where you throw the tobacco on the fire and let these spirits go. They don't want to hang around here. It's like on a this uh, Indian, he died 34. I saw his tombstone up in the Upper Peninsula. Love me, but let me go. Love me, but let me go. Well, this, don't try to hold my spirit on earth, you know. Which is what the rest of the book is about. The other yeah, three stories yeah. is about how his family lets accommodates, him go. Accommodates. Uh, how the family accommodates to this, you know. Well, let me ask you first before we talk about that. Is that the way you'd like to die? The way that Donald dies? Well, no, that's his way. I'm not a Indian. We come from, I come from sort of poor farmers on both sides. These were working people, you know. But Donald dies surrounded by his family and Mm -hmm. also the story about the raven funeral. Well, I saw this. I saw this at my cabin. I was sitting there with my dog and I noticed the ravens started coming into this immense hemlock in the edge of the clearing. There's a real old raven that I got to know over the years. You know, you could get to know them individually. And he was dying, and about three dozen other ravens were hanging out with him. And it took him about an hour and a half. The whole thing took a couple hours. He was falling down through the tree and just sort of grabbing on. But I heard, uh, I actually heard in the silence of that afternoon, I heard him hit the ground with sort of a fluff, a fluffing sound. But all the other ravens, they stayed around about two hours. They kept circling, circling uh, the tree because they're, what I deduced was their patriarch was dying. You know, ravens could live really a long time, 40, 50 years, you know. Yeah, they're very, become old birds and have extended families, you know. And so he just, died with, this raven died with his family? His family around him, you know, and Donald it should be. Well, yeah, that's a, the right way to go, you know. Cynthia, in the book, her part of the story lasts a year. She describes the year of mourning. Well, yeah, but she has a really hard time because when he's dying, he says, you better get yourself another boyfriend, you know, because she's the biggest woman. You know, women, like men, remain vigorous a lot longer. And 
a woman in her mid-40s and on past that is sexually vigorous and we need love. You know, we need affection. We need we need uh, people hugging us and us hugging people. That's part of the human condition, you know. Right. So Cynthia can't quite face up to that and she becomes quite ill, but then she gradually begins to recover and start her life over. First she ends up in the hospital in a yeah, coma. with a real severe pneumonia. But the real problem was the daughter, Claire, who's holding on to anything, and she thinks maybe her father's become a bear, you know, which is possible. Did you read Rockwell's anthropological study, Giving Voice to the Bear, the bear and different native cultures throughout the United States. I didn't read that, but she does in the book. Well, yeah, does she? I forgot, I so. you know, because oddly enough, I've written a whole other novel since then. I'm a busy <laughs> boy. But, uh, but Claire, the daughter, thinks it's possible that her daddy, her beloved daddy, you know, they used to fish and hike together and everything, maybe he's become a bear. And then she could make contact with him herself by sleeping in a sleeping bag in this hut out in the forest in the winter. And, you know, the winter up there is really awful, you know, 40 below, 30 below. And the mother's worried about her more well, than she yeah, is about herself. Well, yeah, the mother displaces her worry about herself into her daughter. Mothers do that. Mothers can be in horrible shape physically and mentally. And they displace it by worrying about their children. I notice that my own wife. It kind of comes around for them when the mother and the daughter, Cynthia and Claire, are out for a walk on some sand dunes and eating yeah. strawberries next to the sand dunes. The wild strawberries up there. Yeah, this is a strange area in our Grand Marais on Lake Superior in Michigan, not the Minnesota Grand Marais. Because there's this immense, immense national seashore where these dunes run about 12 or 14 miles, a couple miles deep, and they're hundreds and hundreds of feet high, you know. And there's little pockets of vegetation and so Very eerie area. And uh, Why did you choose that area? Well, because, the well, one, one detail, the bears of the spring of May... The first vegetation is beech pea, like a wild pea, and then wild strawberries. The bears come out of the forest. We do, too. The fins up there used to go out and pick that beech pea because that was their first fresh vegetable in five or six months, you know, after those long winters. I mean, I've seen sort of icebergs up there in early May. You like that? Harsh climate, yeah. So yeah, I like it. It's very primal. Yeah. So they're out there, and what happens? Well, they see the bear feeding, and she thinks they're both thinking maybe that's uh, Daddy. He goes over the hill, as we all must. That's the last line of the book. Yeah. yeah. And that's a closure for them, or what would you call that? Well, of course, but I don't like that word, closure. 
or healing, all those words. You know, they keep talking about healing now before the blood is drying the pavement. What did Rilke say? The exposed heart is richest than suffering. But, of course, he also said there's a point at which the exposed heart can't recover. You know, there are these wounds some people have. You know, they're evil. I was very pleased with Norman Mailer. Unlike New York and show says, please, there is good and evil. There is good and evil. Please. It's not a sociological phenomenon. There's evil. And I was trying to write about the childhood of Hitler. How, what else are we to think? You know. So let's talk about the United States now. Do you think America's lost its soul since 9-11? Or do you think it's changed? Since well, of course it's changed. I don't know about losing its soul. That's too dramatic. Huh. We've had other periods of more severe crisis. If you can remember, you're younger than me, that period went... Martin Luther King, JFK, Bobby Kennedy were all assassinated. You know, that was a tougher time than now, Vietnam, you know. You think so? Oh, without doubt. I mean, God, 50,000 young men died in Vietnam. I mean, we're up to 3,000 now, which isn't chopped liver. But I have an idea that neither party... I had this idea that I talked to a New York lawyer about. I said, how about a class action suit against Yale for graduating both Bush and Kerry? I'm not picking on one or another. These guys are C students. Think of giving a diagnostic test in American and world history to the members of Congress. Wouldn't that be an alarming result? Huh? It'd be fun, wouldn't it? You boys sit down. I'm going to give you a test. Here's a hundred questions on our past. Do any of you know? Well, do you think we have a serious problem now in America? Oh, I don't know. I don't think in those terms. I see it as a continuum. I mentioned the Vietnam area. I mentioned the Civil War, millions. Right. You know, there's a battalion out of Battle Creek, and only 8% of them returned. You know, that's why I find the Civil War unbearable even to read. Or I passed Verdun on a book tour in northern France. I was passing... A road sign said, we're done. Please remember that 800,000 people died there in 10 days in the Battle of Redon. In the First World War? Yeah, in the First World War. Think of the Jews. Think of the Native Americans that got wiped out. So I don't see us as, as particularly... We changed our country too much in response to 9-11, you know. I mean, Arab terrorists are very cagey like that. Why should we keep doing this? We've already won this one with one fell swoop, as they say. We one, don't have one? to. Well, nine eleven. They don't. That's peculiar to their character. They don't feel they have to keep doing this. They did it once. You see what I mean? So this idea at the airports. 
on this book tour, I've been in a lot of airports, you see an 85-year-old woman trying to struggle to get off her shoes, right? Then you realize there's thousands and tens of thousands of shipping containers that aren't inspected at all. You know, there are thousands of trucks coming over the border from Canada and Mexico that aren't inspected. But meanwhile, we're giving the third degree to this 85-year-old woman. What do you think that's about? We just don't know how to handle the situation. You know, in our old days, our elders got to work on time. But as time goes on, congressmen work fewer and fewer hours. You know, they're only two and a half days a week. It used to be five. They don't know anything anyway, you know. I mean, what it's about is nobody's taking charge. You know, like FEMA and uh, FEMA in New Orleans try to think without sentimentality how Ike Eisenhower would have handled New Orleans. Are you kidding? It'd all be done by now. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's just these loudmouths pushing the blame on each other. Nobody's taking charge. Okay, locally, how about Brigham Young taking <laughs> taking over the New Orleans problem? It would have been done in three months. Yeah. Are you kidding? These were a different kind of man, you know? I mean, give me a break. All you got are all these people blaming each other, you know, trying to take credit, you know? You don't see Bush as an evil man. No, not at all. He intellectually is rather innocent compared to the people around him. You know, like Roe, but I don't see him as particularly evil. He has some problems as a dry alcoholic, you know. You know, alcoholics that quit drinking but that didn't get over the problems of what caused them to drink that much. They call that a dry alcoholic. What do you think are the problems that made him drink? Well, who knows? Who knows? Probably his mom in this case, from what I've read and heard. You know, his father wasn't a bad guy. I remember Otis Carney was a sort of a rich guy, but knew both father and son. George Jr. is just a product of our time with total situational morality and the idea of trying to introduce religion and the government can he figure out that this hasn't worked in the Middle East you know what I mean but now the guy you almost feel sympathetic here he is trying to adjudicate a religious war in Iraq with American bodies I mean he's lost the it's now no longer about Saddam Hussein or anything. It's the Sunni and the Shiites. Well, the idea that none of our congressmen seem to know the difference is interesting, right. isn't it? Yeah. That this is a war, a religious war that started in 632. You know, a division, a schism. In the, it's sort of like the Catholics and Methodists fighting it out to death. Right. You know what I mean? 
he's lost it all now, you know. Let me ask you a bit about environmental, environmental stuff. You write as well as anybody about the environment. You uh, can make natural scenes become very vivid in my mind, and yet you're not called an environmental writer. Why well, how could I be? I'm just writing about life, like I write about food, because we eat three times a day. But the whole, uh, you can't separate the environmental struggles from what we are, you know, from our culture, you know. And now it's largely, uh, I mean, I come from a profound Christian background, and you would think, our biggest problem is greed, you know, greed in biblical terms, cupidity, as we used to call it, just pure greed, Right. you know. I mean, if there's an antichrist, it's greed. You know, in the old days, I remember in church when I was a boy, about the rich man, the rich man that owned three camels and a granary full of grain. And that was a dangerous moral tradition to be that rich, to have those camels and a granary full of grain. I mean, obviously, I'm a successful man myself, but it's also always puzzled me. I remembered when I was at the top of my farm, and my mother said to me, this is before she died, what did Hollywood pay you for writing that screenplay? And I said, $500,000. And my mother said, well, your father, you know, is an agriculturist, a agronomist. I mean, that's 50 times what he ever made in a year. And I said, that's not my fault, Mama. That's what they paid me. <laughs> you know, she was a Swede, you know. She would say, you made quite a living out of your fibs, <laughs> you know. That's a Swedish compliment, you know. So you think greed is the main problem to our environmental problems? Oh, of course. Like why the UP is lovely. A lot of parts of it because they can't make any more money out of it. It's just all spawned up, wild and torn up land with, you know, dozens of miles with no human inhabitants. That's why I love it. We live in a ghost world, a ghost world of huge stumps. Huh. The trees are gone, but we have the stumps, you know. Yeah, it's the same out in the Basin and Range in Nevada. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I know. There's no stumps out there, but there's nothing. Well, they can't make any money on them, but it's it seems to be a natural thing. And to try to fold God into your greed is what worries me. If you read the New Testament, which I was going to be a preacher when I was 15, so I read the New Testament dozens of times in the Bible, I'd see no excuse for ignoring the poor or, like I say, 12 million children without health insurance. What's going on? Christ told us to take care of these people. He didn't tell us to just make a whole bunch of money and ignore them. Right. Do you think? Right. I don't get that, you know. Is there anything about the environment in the New Testament? Well, sure. You know, when Christ, uh, look at what Christ did. When he was troubled about his fate, his future, he spent 40 days in the wilderness alone. 
In other words, he did a 40-day solo. <laughs> you see what I mean? You know, the earth is part of God's body. You know, can't, I can't. I created a false organization just to pin people down. I said, I'm the president of the Christian environmentalists. How can you do this to God's body? That was fun. <laughs> and it made people nervous because it was getting them where they live, you know? Yeah, I was at a conference a couple of days ago to university, and the panel was discussing what kind of a war would Jesus allow. It's a ridiculous <laughs> question. God is not your buddy. He's the master of the universe. There's 90 billion galaxies. The man's in that. It, gives me, it makes me vertiginous. There's 15 galaxies for everybody alive on Earth. I mean, um, the immensity of the universe, the immensity of the nature of human life and animal and insect life. How can you reduce God to somebody who helps you in your business. I mean, that's blasphemy, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Blasphemy, pure blasphemy. Mm -hmm. But here we are having a little drink and smoking and an illegal cigarette in America. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Jim Harrison, originally broadcast on Radio West here in Salt Lake City in 2007. These crickets are from Jim's house outside Patagonia, Arizona, where a couple of weeks ago he died at his desk, pen in hand. I'd like to thank Elaine Clark of Radio West for producing and editing the original interview, and Doug Fabrizio, the host, and Benjamin Bombard, another producer there. Radio West is an excellent show from KUER at the University of Utah, and we're lucky to have it. If you'd like to support this program, there are subscribe and donate buttons on our website, homebrave.com. I don't do advertising, but we do have some very cool T-shirts and patches for sale on the website, homebrave.com. In the next episode... I'm going to tell the story of my recent trip to Palestine, which ended at the LAX airport. It should be a good one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>